Hello, this is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, welcome to, um, to this episode with Richard Battle, and I'm very, very, very excited to have this conversation. He's got a great story, and as you can see behind him, he has a number of books. He's a very well-known author, very well-known speaker, and I've had an opportunity and an honor to follow him on social media. And uh, we linked up through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Doug Wagner, who most of you know, uh, Doug is, full disclosure, a board member of my nonprofit, and Doug has introduced me to some great people, and uh, Richard will be no exception. So, Richard, great to see you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you today. I am too. I, I know I could spend an hour probably on each one of your books, but we're not going to have time on that today. But uh, in looking at your bio and in the pre-conversation uh, we had a couple weeks back, uh, a lot of what you do comes from a place of, of pain and trauma that you went through years ago. Um, I think we can navigate at that at some point and talk about what happened uh, that has given you kind of a new perspective, a new lens on life. But where, where do you find the motivation and the inspiration to just keep coming up with tremendous books that you've been writing over the years? Well, it's, it's very interesting from the standpoint, I never dreamed I'd be where I am right now. And that when I left the corporate world after many years, I was looking to try to serve on some corporate boards and write some business books and move that direction. But other life events and somebody telling me that there are a thousand of those type business books, you ought to write your experiences that you had and some other things that may last longer so I developed, my mission is to provide timeless, positive messages of proven principles, helping people win each day. So everything I try to do, even though it may have some current events tied to it, is tying it to principles that if somebody picks it up 50 years from now, they can still benefit from the idea. That's the hope. Yeah, and I, I went through, I've only written one book in my life, but I kind of went through the same thing when I talked to my publicist and... He said, you know, there's lots of people out there that have lost a child. Um, you know, you're not the only one that's ever had that happen. Obviously, you know, we'll talk about your situation as well, Richard. But, but he said, you know, you got to make your book different. You got to make your book uh, something about it where people are going to pick it up and, and they're not just going to hear the sad story of what happened, but they're going to put it down and feel really good about something in that book. And I've had a chance to look through a couple of your books, and there's a lot of inspiration, there's a lot of motivation, and there's a lot of hope in what you write about. And does that come from what happened to you uh, years ago? Well, definitely uh, a part of that, but I have a, a, a deep faith that we're here for a reason. And as long as we're here, uh, we're here to find out what that reason is and, and execute it. And so that's what drives me is based on my experiences, good and bad, which I've, I've been blessed to have some really great experiences too, and then have some challenges. But I try to be a student of those so that when I have an adverse experience, I learn the lesson I think I'm supposed to learn so I don't have to suffer twice for one lesson. And then my motivation is to try to share things so others can learn and be inspired from my experience so they may not have to experience the suffering or experience directly, if that makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. And we are in a, we're in a world today, and specifically our country, where there's a lot of people hurting for 
for some self-induced reasons, uh, other reasons beyond their control. Uh, you talk about winning the day, and I hear that a lot. Matter of fact, that's one of my 12 steps uh, in my book. One of my 12 daily steps was, you know, win the day, nothing more, nothing less. If you had to really break that down, what, what, what would winning the day be for Richard Battle? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, in my corporate life, it was very much planned and goal-oriented and executing the goal with very little uh, listening and deviation based on uh, interruptions or things that came up. Now right. I have goals and I'll have things I want to do, but it is amazing the difference at the end of the day when I get ready to go to bed and I review the day, how often I've accomplished something or had something really great happen that wasn't in my plan that day. And I may not mm -hmm. have accomplished everything that was in my plan, but in mm -hmm. retrospect, the days are better because of the adjustments, uh, the adaptation that made to inspiration that came or someone that came in that I didn't expect that day and I was able to communicate with them and share something uh, that just, it just made the day better for both of us. And so that to me is just breathtaking how often that happens. How long ago did you leave corporate? I left corporate at the end of 2017. Oh, okay, so pretty after, recently. Yeah, pretty recently after uh, 40 plus years of revenue responsibility and people responsibility and uh, just a, a very structured, more structured life. Now I'm a, a free agent and have the freedom to respond <laughs> to when I hear the spirit and I've been humble many times to have been have been given ideas and inspiration uh, in bed I've been awakened with specific inspiration to write or share with people uh, driving down the road in church uh, many different places because I find myself more open and receptive to hearing that kind of communication than I might have been before and again it's, it's just amazing and it's led to all kinds of different uh, creations and experiences that I didn't uh, foresee or dream about. Why do you think so many people are unhappy? That, well, that's another great question. <laughs> <laughs> I got more for you as we go on. So <laughs> I think expectations, false expectations. Yeah. And the, I think the world creates false expectations for people. It creates uh, material expectations for us. It creates expectations of how other people ought to be in relationship with yeah. us. And when we try to live those false expectations and they don't happen, then we'll be unhappy. And if we look at a longer term future, if we look at a less materialistic future, uh, if we look in the future versus the past, uh, which we talked about in the uh, pre-call the other day. Uh, I think that's important when we look to help others versus looking at our current situation. Yeah. When I, when I look at myself, I may find something, if I'm having uh, tough challenges, it can be easy to become depressed. But right. whenever I think about others and something I may say or do to help others, that depression goes away. And there's a joy that you receive when you help others, however little it is. And, and one of the things I say is 
the greatest gift we can give anyone is the gift of encouragement. Uh, it costs mm -hmm. us nothing, and there's no telling how it may affect someone's future in their lives. And just one little positive word at the right time. We never know mm -hmm. how that may turn someone loose into the future who achieves great things because of a word that we shared. And it's so that simple. Is, that's so true because you never know what people are going through when you bump into them day to day. You're at the store, you're in a parking lot and somebody cuts you off. You got to think to yourself, maybe that person just got served divorce papers today. Maybe he just got back from the funeral of his of his mom who died of cancer. Maybe he just got fired today and have some compassion with people. And I know I practice what's called meta mindfulness meditation. And it's a it's a practice where you actually think of people you don't really like. You think of people that annoy you, that have been mean to you, that maybe it could be someone in your past. Uh, years ago or someone that maybe it's your neighbor. You just, for some reason, you don't like them. And you think kind thoughts about that person and you actually wish them a good day. You, you talk out loud. You say, may you be happy. Sounds corny. It sounds cheesy. But as you go through your day and you bump into people, you know, people are looking at you with the same lack of vision. You know, they don't know anything about you. They don't know what you've been through, you know. And I think if we all could, each one of us, our small part, just become a better human being from just the perspective of understanding that everybody has something going on that I think we could progress a little bit better as a society. And if anything, maybe collectively become a little happier, you know? Yeah. Uh, two things. I think that's great. And the first is where I really understood that was when I was sitting in the hearse, uh, getting ready to take the procession for my son's funeral. And burial. And as we were driving down the road and I looked out and saw the other traffic and cars going by and I was crushed in spirit and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. how can they be living life when this is yeah. going on? But it was yeah. totally focused on me and not focused right. on the bigger picture. And mm -hmm. it was interesting. And so I understood that while I may have gone through that that day, others are going through it other days when I'm not going through something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of that that I think fits well is I think the greatest gift we can give ourselves is forgiving others transgressions against us. Yeah, sure. When that, when that lesson came home to me is in the 1980s, I, I was a straight commission sales guy, but I took all my savings and invested in rental real estate. And everything mm -hmm. was going well for eight or nine years, and I was building assets in a portfolio. And then the real estate crash hit, and the yeah. market turned upside down. And over a course of three years, uh, I lost a lot of money, <laughs> and yeah. uh, a lot of money. I had people abuse me, tenants, people that bought properties and reneged on it that I had to foreclose on. Yep. And I finally came to the realization that if I hated them or held a grudge against them, they didn't care. So the only person that grudge hurt was me. And yeah. I realized that if I just would forget about that, forget about them, that way I could let go and live in the future and not live in the past. And that freed me. <clears throat> and so when we forgive others, it's the greatest gift we can give ourselves. It's certainly a, there's a sense of liberation 
when you can look at someone who's angry, maybe they're angry at you for whatever reason, and you can say, you know, I, I can't, I have no control over the way they feel towards me, but I certainly have control over how I feel towards myself. And I just wrote a blog that posted last week on, it's called, Are You an Imposter? And I wrote about imposter syndrome and how that's permeated society. I had never heard of the word just until, you know, the last couple of years. And now it's thrown around a lot. And it's just, you know, we, we sit on social media, we watch people, we think, wow, you know, I'm not productive. You know, Richard's writing eight books. I've, I've only written one, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm obviously not as good as Richard because he has eight more, you know, eight books. And I think we all play that to an extent. Some of us play it to the point where we get depressed and we drink and we do drugs and we commit suicide because we just, we have a really hard time adapting to who we are. And I think there is something to say about being comfortable in your own skin. And it's okay to look at someone else, but I'm genuinely happy when I see somebody do something that I'm not doing. I'm, 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 I'm very happy. And it's taken a lot of years for me to practice with, through my meditation to get to that point. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, I don't have a lot of jealousy in me. I just don't. And I don't, I'm only 55. So I got a lot of years left where I can use this practice to not be an angry, bitter old man, you know? Well, exactly, and I'm further along on the age scale. <laughs> By the time you get where I'm at, you may have 20 books out. Who knows? I think, yeah. again, that's the world trying to get us to compare ourselves to the Joneses yeah. and compare yep. in, in materialistic-type ways. And I, I saw someone say, really, the only person we should compare ourselves to is ourselves the day before or yesterday. Mm -hmm. And if we're better today than we were yesterday, that's great. And so the way I say it is, uh, what we do today and tomorrow and the rest of our tomorrows is more important than what we did yesterday. It's funny you say that because uh, I, I write down, and I'm sure you do too, I have to write down because I'll forget, like my, my to-do list. I know some books say don't do to-do lists, others say it works for me. But the problem is I don't get to them. Um, and I, I end up having these carryovers where I'll have five tasks carryover and then the next day it's nine and then it's 10. And I finally just decided, you know what? If I have a, something on my to-do list, I don't get it done. Nine times out of 10, I just delete it. I just, I just never do it. And you know what? Time goes by, nothing happens bad. Most times there's, there's not any repercussions. And I've tried to get down to thinking of my day as in one or two tasks that I have to get done today. You know, like one of my tasks today was twofold. I had to start talking to people about my tour next summer, the Living Undetoured U.S. tour that we're going to raise hopefully a million dollars for uh, mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. And I also need to tee up some more podcast guests like you. So pretty much all I've done today is work the phones, work my contacts to plan for next summer. And also I've set two more interviews for future guests for my show. Now, I didn't get to the eight other things on my to-do list, but that's okay. I felt like I accomplished something yes. today, right? I mean, do you think if people, broke their, if people broke their daily lives down to little battles like that, you think that a lot more stress would be relieved? Yes, yes, it would. And I agree. Uh, I have a list of things that I can do every day. There's, there's never an end to them. But here's what, what I would say. A dream delayed is not a dream denied. Perfect. All right, because you may do some of those things a year from now or five years from now. 
And, and the story I love to tell is about Laura Ingalls Wilder, who most people mm -hmm. know wrote the Little House on the Prairie series. And I won't give right. you how I kind of got into looking at her life, but I always thought she wrote the books as diaries as a little girl. And she did not write the books. Uh, she was writing newspaper and magazine articles after her husband died, and her daughter just begged her to write about the story she told as a little girl. And she didn't publish her first book till she was 65 years old. She published really? her ninth book when she was 76. She wow. died at 90 years old. 17 years after she died was when the TV series came out. And that hmm. TV shows on almost 24 hours a day now. And so yeah. the whole point is we never know what we'll do when or when it may impact someone beyond our lifetimes. And so all we can do is every day as we're given those things to do is try to put the bricks down the best we can and do the things that we get to do until our time here is done and then leave the results and the timing of the results into the, the big man upstairs hands. I mean, what a great story uh, because I kind of, Every time you hear a story, you kind of relate it back to your own life. So you start thinking about how does that make sense? And so in my case, I look at my 32 year investment career and, you know, for most part, it was enjoyable, but I don't really think I was making a impact on society as much as I've done in four years with my projects and what I'm doing now. I think I've accomplished in four what I did in 30 in my previous life. And yet, I have never made much money on all this I'm doing with my living undeterred, my books, all that stuff. Yet I've got I've got so much more satisfaction out of it. And there's a there's an interesting dilemma there, I guess, or a story behind that, that when people are out seeking joy and they are trying to fill joy with happiness, happiness can be fleeting, happiness can be very short term. And we got to find joy in our lives. You got to find a, a passion. I've got a quote that you've heard me say, purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And, you know, I think that's what really happened to me. And, and Richard, I'm sure in your life, you can find those pivot points where you just all of a sudden on a dime changed. And that happened to me twice, losing my son and then losing my wife uh, four months ago. I've had these pivot points, but I've come out of it stronger, healthier, uh, and a better person, you know. And I think there's something to be learned from someone else's unfortunate situation, you know? Yeah. We're the, su we're the sum of our whole lives. And mm -hmm. people ask me, well, how many books are you selling? And I'll tell them, well, yeah, I was selling books, but that's not my calculus. And I'll right. tell people if only my daughter and if she has kids in the future and future family, if they're the only ones that ever look at it and gain something out of it, it'll be worthwhile. Right. But I know others have based on feedback I've gotten. And that feedback, you talk about the old credit card priceless commercials, uh, that feedback's priceless. Uh, I had right. a lady, when our gym reopened after the two weeks to shut down and save everybody from the COVID in May of uh, 2020, I was standing in line to check in and the lady turned around, she goes, I really enjoyed your book. And before I could ask her which one, and I'd, I'd seen her yeah. at church, but I didn't know her name, and I was going to ask her which one, she said, Surviving Grief by God's Grace about the loss of my son. And I didn't right. ask her why it touched her or anything, 
But that book's been out 19 years now. And so to know that someone's been touched by it recently, that adds impact to my son's life and, and just adds uh, validation for the effort to put in to share the story to try to help other people. I'm going to ask you two questions. What's, what was the most enjoyable book for you to write and which one do you think has been the most impactful? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> and there's, there's a tie-in to both. Uh, all eight to this point have had enjoyment tied with them. Uh, they all have a story behind them. They all have a different purpose. One of the most difficult things I have in people when they try to get me to speak or other things, they always want to pin you down to what genre do you write in, what subjects do you yeah. speak about. And I'm very difficult to pin down because I've spoken on many different topics and written on many topics, and I find it scares people. They don't really know yeah. how to deal with that. Uh, I think the most impactful are the two, Surviving Grief and Unwelcome Opportunity, because they're both faith-based books about overcoming life's challenges and how a faith in a, a creator who can help us overcome challenges and so we don't have to try and rely on ourselves to face adversity by ourselves. And I think I would hate to be someone without faith going through COVID and other difficulties and trying to do it by myself. And I think that creates a lot of depression and suicides and things of that nature also because we focus on what we don't have. We, ha we find we're unable to take care of ourselves and so there's nowhere to go if you don't put your faith in something bigger than ourselves to help us through those situations. And that's where being connected and uh, I think um, Johan Harry, uh, who's a writer about addiction and substance abuse and so forth, talked about the opposite of addiction was connect, uh, connectivity, you know, being connected. And I think there's a lot to go with when I went through my grieving, I shouldn't say when I went through, like I'm over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not, and I never will be, and I personally, I don't want to be over it, because that means I want to forget about uh, two people I care about, and I don't want to ever forget about them. So, um, But I think I go back and look at what saved me, and it was the connection with my other two boys, uh, Roman and Ian, my parents still alive, my coworkers, my neighbors, you know, people I met on LinkedIn and social media like you. Uh, that kept me, kept my ship righted, you know, as I could build a new foundation through meditation and reading and writing and starting my nonprofit, all these things that was a, was a, a normal outlet for someone with attention deficit that constantly need to be doing something. All that packaged together uh, became my toolkit for grieving to the point where I feel like, I feel like I'm at a pretty good place right now, you know, and again, I just, I'm, I'm, 120 days removed from burying my wife of 21 years. And people may say, well, it's almost like you don't care, Jeff. Well, no, I care. That That's the opposite of that. I care enough that I'm also a realist that I know we all die. And we don't always die in the right order or a convenient time or on our terms. Matter of fact, more often than not, we don't die in any way like that at all. Yeah. And so the you mentioned preparedness. I think it was, you said preparedness. Um, I love that word. I had someone ask me one time, it's like, what's the one word you would give to help somebody that's about to go through what you've been through? And I said, preparedness. 
being prepared for the inevitability of things like death and, you know, things that happen that are just part of the deal you make when you're born, you know? And I think as a society, we have a hard time dealing with things that are inevitably coming to all of us down the road. And when they do happen, we're like stunned and then we don't know how to handle it. And it could be a function of many things. It could be parents coddling us. It could be um, society painting this romantic, fake Hollywood image that, you know, I don't know. It just seems to me there's a lot of issues that we can work through to help our kids become uh, more uh, improving their overall self-worth and well-being. I mean, there's a lot that we can definitely improve on. Wouldn't you agree with that? Well, yes. And uh, what I tell people is I don't grieve where my son is. I grieve where he isn't. Mm-hmm. And he that's good. Like he's that. in eternity. And I trust he's with the Creator. And my job here, as long as I'm here until I'm taken away, is to do things to make the most of what I'm instructed to do. And that's the way I look at it. And so, yes, I, I don't like it that he's not here. I wish he was here. I missed him growing up and being a father and things of that nature, but I can't control that. So I can right. only do the things I can do. And the question is, do we try to do something positive and constructive or do we come back and focus on the past and inward and just end up not doing anything constructive but having a destructive behavior? Yeah, I like the way you phrase that because I have looked at people that have handled things very, um, you know, from my perspective, well, and they've they've turned their life into a we story, not a me story. And as they navigate through life, they're bringing in people, you know, to, to like, you know, subconsciously or consciously help them form this team around them where they have the support system. And it's you've been around those people when all they do is project their story constantly. After a while, you're like, okay, I like to talk to Jeff, but all he wants to talk about is what happened to him. And I was that guy for a while. And something kind of resonated with me. I think I was talking to a a gentleman who had lost um, similar type situation. But the first half hour I talked to him, he never even brought it up. And... I was bringing it up in the first couple of sentences and I thought, all right, I got to learn from this. There's got to be a way I can still get to my point of talking about Seth, but not shoving it down people's throats. And so I think there's um, I think there's a, a great aspect of vulnerability, Richard, but I also think vulnerability can be a big turnoff for some people as well. Well, they don't know how to respond and people don't yeah, know good. how to respond when when any of right. anyone's grieving, people don't know what to say. And sometimes they'll say things that are they are well-meaning, but they're more hurtful than helpful. And yeah. I'm sure you've experienced that as yeah. well. And we have to give them grace because they mean well, even though they may something say something that, that's hurtful. And again, it's the same type thing. We we who have lost have to figure out how do we communicate or not. Uh, a lot of times people don't know I've had that loss of a son. May you, you may experience the same thing with your son and, and wife where people won't know. And something will come up and you can relate, well, uh, yeah, I wish I didn't have this experience, but I've had this experience. And, yeah. you know, there, there may be some things I can share with you. Uh, James Street, who was a 
famous athlete in the Austin area, when his son was getting ready to go in the major leagues and he was complimenting him, he said, the good ones learn from their mistakes. The great ones learn from the mistakes of others. And the corollary is the same thing with us helping people is that people can learn from their own experiences, but if they learn from others' experiences, <laughs> then that's even better because they don't have to have the loss to get the, get the knowledge. And I certainly yeah, I wish write. I would have learned from uh, knowledge versus experience on several things. Yeah, I, I, I echo that as well. Mm -hmm. I remember a conversation I had with my youngest son a few years after Seth had died, and I write about this in the book, where he had came to me in one of the talk, and he said, you know, Dad, I'm just not over Seth's death. And, you know, I listened to it. I, I tried to understand where this was coming from. And then I, after we talked a little bit more, I said, you know, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment, Roman, because you're asking yourself to get over something that is not possible to get over. Yeah. It's a mountain that's too high to climb. So you know what? Go around it. Don't, don't, don't climb over it. Go through it or go around it. And what I meant by that is absorb your brother's death into your story instead of trying to bury it and acting as if it never happened. Yeah. And that's the problem with a lot of grief today is that people just say, oh, I'm going to get over it. Yeah. I, I just, I hate that term. I don't like the get over it philosophy. I don't like building up scar tissue. And I, I just think those are rhetorical answers that don't have a lot of meaning to me. I'd rather say, you know what? Your brother died, but instead of trying to get over it, just carry Seth with you every day. Absorb him into you and live your life for him, but honor him because he's no longer here. And you can honor him by not drinking, by not smoking, by not skipping school, by not, you know, stealing and, and doing. That's how you honor Seth. Yeah. And then you'll live a good life and he's with you, you know. And he was only 16 at the time when I was having this talk, so it's hard to be too deep with the 16-year-old. Um but I thought there was a life lesson there. There was a moment that I, I could learn as a dad that instead of just being that Dr. Phil, Bobby Knight, rah, rah, you know, tough love, you know what? You're not going to get over his death, and that's perfectly okay. I'm not sure why you want to get over his death. Yeah, I know. I think that was a great lesson for your son. Uh, I think we all model as examples, and your modeling with the positive things you're doing is an example where whether your sons say it or not, they have to think, well, if this is how dad can handle this, I ought mm -hmm. to be able to handle it well also. And that's right. a positive way to deal with this uh, because we, we have to end up being realist in dealing with it. Well, dealing yeah. with it means we, we go on and do something positive, not just like we would if we didn't have the experience, but I think even better because of the experience we are more understanding and caring to try to do things to help others than we would be if we didn't suffer the loss and grief. Hmm. You know, you're either getting better or you're not, right? I mean, there's no such thing as staying the same. Even each day, you know, a little piece of us dies. You're either trying to improve by exercising or dieting or reading or doing a podcast, whatever, or you're regressing, you're going backwards. And I think the challenge for, for me 
even though I don't do what you do. Um, I think you and I both have similar types of people we talk to yeah. is, you know, um, making sure that we can do this in, in the context of being a positive person. And I was going to ask you this question. Have you always been an optimistic, positive person? <laughs> and is that something that's always, cause I, you know, yeah. I wasn't, I had an anger issue back in my teenage days. I, I would consider myself highly overly competitive at a fault where if I lost something, I would break something. Um, and I learned probably in my thirties meeting some people in the sales side of financial services, how to be very optimistic and positive, kind of that Zig Ziglar, uh, mentality. So I'm going to ask you again, have you always been optimistic? Have you always been a positive person? Uh, yes. And, and I've had the ability, thankfully, to be able to deflect the negativism of others and not let it affect me. Uh, I was laughing because I did an interview with a a lady on the radio the other day in Colorado, and, and her comment was that I was the antidote to that which brings you down, which mm. I was very humbled and honored when she yeah. said that. <laughs> so that's, that's a pretty good compliment. Our attitude shapes so much of what we do, yeah. and just being positive will make people want to be with us more. It'll help us impact people more. Uh, no one wants to be around someone negative. I worked with a guy for nine years. Right. I was in Austin. He was in Houston. And every time I called him on the phone, I'd say, Bob, how you doing? And his answer every time was not worth a D-A-M, you know what. And just yep. negative and just other people that would talk to him, he'd bring down. But I was always trying to pull him up and get him, get him to think something positive. And, Could you uh, do that? Did it work? Unfortunately, not with him. <laughs> I think there's others, though, that we can help. Like when you changed and saw it, and I think when people see positive people and we deal with the same things they're dealing with, they're going to want to say, how does he right. really do that? And what right. do they rely on to help them go through these experiences and handle them in a more productive way than a negative way. And so I think that's healthier for us, but it's also mm -hmm. healthier for the people that look up to us. And it's, and it's so funny. We always think, I think the best leadership's by example. And the story no I, I tell that because everyone's an example to someone else. It doesn't matter how old or young or what our positions are. And one of the days I was most humble about my example, I came home when my daughter was about two and it was the first time she ever had popcorn. And her mother had taught her to take one piece out of the bowl and eat it one piece at a time. Well, I came in, uh, grabbed a fistful of popcorn and went back in another <laughs> room and shoved it in my mouth and went back in the other room to change clothes. And when I came back where she was, she was grabbing a fistful of popcorn and shoving it in her mouth. Sure. <laughs> and, I, and I realized here she was two years old and that was my example to her. And it took yeah. her mother a while to, to unteach her what I had taught her. But we all are examples to others. And we don't know when someone's looking to us for an example. Right. And it may not be right. something we say. It may be something we do. And we, we all fail periodically. Uh, and unfortunately, we fall on our faces and everything. And that's not an issue, but it's how we deal with that. And then how we go forward and people will see it and say, wow. Maybe I can learn something from that. And, and that's what I hope that I can overcome my failures and leave positive examples for people. I was talking with someone the other day and they 
made a comment. It was meant to be humbling. You know, I, I didn't overly look at it that way, but they said something to the effect that, well, you know, Jeff, you're just, you're wired differently. You're just unique. You know, you, you know, you know, you're just, and, and basically kind of inferring that I was almost lucky or I was born this way. And what people don't see is how much work it has taken me to get to be this guy right now. And an enormous amount of work. I mean, suicidal ideation, alcoholism, uh, hundreds of sleepless nights, um, wandering around my house at three in the morning, crying, going through boxes, just lying on the floor, you know, just quit drinking, exercising, eating healthy, reading, avoiding toxic people, doing podcasts where I'm meeting optimistic people like you every single day. I'm, I'm my whole life right now. I'm around people like Richard Battle. Like I'll, I'll talk to like 10 Richard Battles today. How in the hell can I have a bad day <laughs> when I'm talking to people that all they do is, is uplift you? Yeah. So I've worked very, very hard to get where I'm at and I don't plan on losing it. I don't plan on falling back because I like where I'm at with my life right now. I'm in a very good place emotionally. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that I was born this way or I was lucky or I don't care about the people I've lost. Yeah. Just the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Just the opposite. I think being positive is a choice. And maybe I made it earlier for whatever reason, yeah. uh, but it's been reaffirmed over and over as I've seen uh, negative people and seen that destructive behavior and things like that. Every time I see that, I'm grateful to be positive and it reinforces that choice because the world wants to beat us down. Yeah. It's the sad thing. And uh, I mean, if you watch the news too much, if you watch pop culture, it's all yeah. designed to make you feel negative. And so right. you have to take right. it in very measured doses just to see what's going on versus becoming, I'll use the term addicted or uh, engrossed with it and thinking that that's the way we ought to live. Uh, this celebrity culture that we have uh, is that way where people do things just to try to be celebrities. When I, when I post socially on Twitter uh, and I joke with people about, well, I see all these half-dressed women on there and I, I don't think I can get away doing that. And they have all these followers and get all these repost and everything and you put out oh, don't sell yourself short richard don't sell yourself short <laughs> you put out something positive and you get three or four reposts on it yeah. but yeah. the difference is we may touch someone positively one person it just takes yeah. one person we never know whereas they touch thousands but there's nothing positive out of it except a momentary uh, stimulation if you will and yeah. so again we have to measure things differently on how we have impact and we have to be satisfied knowing that if we're doing the right thing and doing it positively, there will be positive fruit from it. You know, Nick Saban said, everybody wants what you have, but nobody wants to work as hard as you yeah. have worked. Yeah. And I, just, I think I just saw that on Twitter today and I thought, what a, what a great quote, although I don't know if everybody wants what I have, but I certainly think that people think that where I'm at now didn't take a lot of work and it's taken a lot of work. And so um, I have a question for you that we'll jump in kind of 15 minutes or so, uh, start to finish this up, but I have some other questions for you. But I wanted to ask you, 
I assume you're working on your next book. Uh, and what topic or what angle are you looking at? If you aren't look, if you aren't working on a book, what what would you want to write about? <laughs> well, the uh, next project will be a, a continuation of the two before life's daily treasure, which are kind of uh, essays on common sense applied to current events and historical events, if you will, with a, a positive and a motivational and inspirational bent, and so. The, that's kind of the day-to-day the -day stuff that I do, but then I get kind of thrown to these other projects that I don't plan that all of a sudden come into play. So are you, quote, for hire uh, to give speak, speaking engagements, to be a keynote, to do things like that? I mean, let's talk a little bit about what the Richard Battle brand is right now uh, so my followers and listeners can learn a little more about how they may be able to use some of uh, your services or at least see what you do. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, I enjoy speaking to groups because you get a you get a feedback, you get an interaction, and you can adjust what you're saying based on nonverbal responses from an audience. And some of the things that I'm doing now, I diverted to do because of the COVID situation last year, kind of cut yeah. that down. And so I'm right. doing much more radio and TV and. Uh, many other types of things now done more books than I thought I would do because of that versus going and doing presentations. So I enjoy doing that. Uh, I think I have a, a lot of variety as well as depth of business and nonprofit type experience uh, nationally and internationally. And so I am an advisor uh, to businesses as well. From the standpoint of trying to, I hate to use the word consultant. I don't like yeah. that word as much as an advisor uh, because right. I like to look at issues and obstacles and help come up with creative solutions. That's one of the things I enjoy most. And I do that from the platform. I do it from books. I do it interviews like this. And then I do it advising individuals or businesses uh, on issues they may have. And so opportunities like that, I enjoy and, and hope to find more of. I think one of the things that I'm, I'm really focused on and trying to meet people like yourself and other people I've had as guests and, and vice versa is to break down some of the stigmas that we have as, as a society. And the big one is, is mental illness and mental health illness. And I... <laughs> I wrote a blog recently where I said something to the effect about, you know, is, is attention deficit a mental illness is, you know, blah, 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 mental illness. And I said, is being human a mental illness? And I think my point is we all at some level, every single human that's ever walked the planet has had some level of a mental health illness whether it's anxiety, depression, you know, all the things that go in line with it. It may not be suicidal ideation. It may not be, you know, bipolar or something like that. But I think when we look at people and say they have a mental illness, but I don't, again, I think that perpetuates the stigma. So I'm trying to bring down these labels to a more play, level playing field where it's okay to say, I'm Jeff Johnston, I have a mental illness, and my mental illness is... You know, I'm, I'm hyper, I'm intense, you know, I, I'm, uh, I have attention deficit, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Those are my superpowers. That, that's what makes me 
do what I do so well, or at least with passion, and other people are wanting to do a podcast, but they can't find the desire. Yeah. Someone with attention deficit, it's not a curse. So I tell, I meet kids all the time that are labeled with ADD, and I, I take the word D off because the last D stands for disorder. Yeah. I mean, that's criminal. How, how in the heck can attention deficit be anything other than an attribute to somebody if, 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 if nurtured the correct way? Would you agree? I mean, well, yeah, that's I mean, one first word. Thing, first thing is our greatest strengths are very close to the issues that can be challenges. And so mm -hmm. high energy and things like that are good. If they'd had drugs when I was in elementary school, they'd have had me drugged up so much about attention <laughs> deficit. Me too. They didn't know. And so part of the issue is some of these things they call disorders now, again, it's such a negative thing. And it, creates, it is. There's all I hate kinds it. of issues about it. Our parents and grandparents, one, they didn't have time to think about that. They were too busy right. to survive. And right. So they, if they had some issue that was inhibiting their success, they had to find through their uh, family, through their church, neighbors, or something else, right. uh, help me to get through this and become better and succeed. Now, did everybody do that? No. But people didn't look to the government. They didn't look to some doctor for every little thing. And yes, there are things people need assistance on. But I think we're creating more and more dependency on doctors no and government versus no an independence and an interdependence on family and friends and neighbors in our church to help us in that situation. So I, I think I would like to get back to a better balance uh, of that. Yeah. And I try to channel uh, my energy because I'm very high energy and very outgoing, very positive, and try to channel all that into positive things. Whereas when I was a kid, I'd end up getting in trouble and having to write, I will not talk in class 500 times and things of that nature because of that ADD. <laughs> it's so funny because you're so right. I mean, when I was younger and all my friends, we'd hang out together, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, all these words, you know, all these terms, you know, bipolar and schizophrenic and, and attention deficit and all the, they weren't out there. We just, my dad said little Jeffy's hyper, you know, that that's, that's what ADD was, was just, yeah. you were hyper. And now it's like, you get this stamp on your forehead and, and I'm passionate about this because my son, Seth was labeled attention deficit disorder and he was given Adderall. And that was the beginning of the end of, of him yeah. was when he was given Adderall. So had not that diagnosis been so inaccurate and premature, he was just an intense kid. He was a very good guitarist. He was a very good basketball player. He had anger issues. He was intense. He was competitive. But what kid isn't it at 13 years old, 14 years old? I mean, my dad used to always, and I say my dad a lot. He's a retired doctor, so he's fairly well-knowledged on these things. But he said, you know, you can't put in desire in kids, but you sure in heck can take it out of them. Yes. And his point was, once you have that, keep it, nurture it, make it your friend, make it a superpower. Don't, don't take it out of you by giving you a pill or by telling you you have a disease. I mean, how, how criminal is that? I just get so upset when I get going down that road is that we, and I say we, because I was, I was culpable as well when the doctor gave Seth Adderall. It was on my watch, Richard. I mean, I allowed it to happen. I didn't Google search it. Adderall's watered down methamphetamine. That's all it is. And I didn't do that. And I, I learned a very painful lesson. And I'm hoping I can teach other people that when doctors, 
give a prescription that's fine you are allowed to go out and research it on your own you're allowed to say no yes we all learn as we go and so we, we can't beat ourselves up too much you you do the best you can every day mm-hmm. i do the best i can every day and, and you talk about uh, your son's energy and things of that nature and people's performance well people perform at the level they're they're expected and if you expect them to grow and become more successful and better, they will become more successful and better. If you tell them they're negative and there's something wrong with them and they can't do something, then they're going to think they can't do it and they won't do it. And again, society right. is putting more negativity in people now and creating more dependency and, uh, than we've ever had before, whereas I think we need to give people an encouragement to become more independent and more successful and independent uh, during their lives. And when we do that, they're going, they're going to do better. And I think football coaches are probably the best motivators like that because the best ones, when somebody's doing poorly, they don't go beat them up. They pick them up right. off the ground and say, hey, you can do better yeah. and I'm going to help you do better. Right. And, the, and then they right. say the coach knows I can do better and they go out and bust it and they do better. And then when somebody does too well and they get the big head, well, then the coach says, hey, you're not as good as you think you are. And that's the kind of motivation. We lift people when they're down and we help them realize they should be more humble if they get the big head. It's it's a very simple formula that's worked for many, many years. And yet that's the exact opposite of what pop culture and the creation of this dependency culture is trying to put in everybody right now. So how do we fix how do we fix this? Well, I think each of us has to do every day what we can to communicate these types of messages and reach as many people as we can to share this and try to fight back against this pop culture and this the culture of dependency and the negativity and things of that nature. I mean simple things. I'll I'll talk to people who are just really depressed and angry. And I'll find out they've got their television on the news channel all day. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what network. If they're watching the news right. all day long, they're going to be negative. And so yep. I'll tell them, hey, I get up in the morning and I'll turn the, the news on to see if the world's still here or not. And once I get a few minutes of it and I realize everything is just moving along, then I can turn it off and go about my day and do something productive. And I'm much happier when I do that than if I sit and watch it for an hour or two. I'm laughing because during the election, I, I didn't watch any of the election. I didn't watch any of the debates or anything. And I, just by choice, this stuff doesn't interest me anymore like it used to. But I, one of my friends was like really irritated that I wasn't interested in watching the debates. And he said like, well, don't you want to be informed? I mean, don't, don't you want to know what's going on? And I said, if knowing what's going on and being miserable is the result, then I'd rather be dumb and be happy. You know, I'd rather not know what's going on, but be happy than to know everything that's going on, every scandal, every behind the scenes breaking story, but be paranoid, be conspiracy theorist, be, be unhappy. Or my option is be uninformed to an extent. I mean, I'm, I'm on social media, I read articles and stuff, but I'm happy and I'm, and I'm, in a, I'm at peace in my life. I will take that any day than being smart and miserable. 
any day. Well, yes, but I, I don't think we have just a choice of two. But if no, I know I'm, I'm being overly dramatic. Yeah. Yes, yes, you are. Yeah. But I think we can, <laughs> we can take it on a measured basis and have the best of right. both worlds, and that that would be yeah. ideal. But the the media wants us and wants our eyeballs and our eardrums every day, all day long, because of the advertising dollars they get. And things were much simpler back in the days when the TV went off at midnight. And when I was a little kid, I'd get up before 6 o'clock in the morning and oh, the yeah. test pattern was on the TV on Saturday morning <laughs> because the, the TVs were off for six hours and yeah. things were much better. But the 24-hour news cycle has bred this culture of trying to get people locked in all the time. And they well, do it for the money and the influence, and it's not to our betterment. I come from the investment background, so I own a wealth management firm here in Cedar Rapids called Premier Investments of Iowa. I have nine advisors and five full-time staff, and we said that the worst invention ever for the average investor was the internet. Because back in the day, when my dad was in his 30s, his quarterly statement showed up four <laughs> times a year in the mailbox, okay? My dad was raising four boys. He was working for the Iowa basketball team. He was a doctor at the University of Iowa. He'd look at a statement, okay, I got X number of dollars and threw it out, you know? And payroll deduction, all this stuff was automatic. Yeah. It, was, it was set it and forget it. And now today, all day long on their phone, people are looking at their 401k like it's a darn horse race. Yeah. And I think if you look at the average rate of returns in the 60s, Compared to the average rate of returns today, they woefully underperformed today than they did in the 60s. And you think to yourself, well, how can that be? Because there's more investments, they're lower cost, they're more available, they're easily available, they're, you can buy them for free on, on your phone. And yet in the 60s, you had to call your broker up and literally drive down to his office and buy a stock and you got a certificate in the mail. And it was so archaic, but they made money back then for one reason investing is now gambling well yeah and uh it's, it's interesting i do something today i'll just check mine once a week but i keep a excel spreadsheet and I, I track it every week but then i go i've got it back almost 20 years week over week year over year yeah and so when there's a bad week and i feel bad about it and i log it in at the end of the week then i look at where was it a year ago this week where yeah, was it two years perfect. ago this week? Yeah, and I that's feel fine. better, that's so much faster. Yep. <laughs> and so <Right. laughs> that's another way to compare it. Well, you don't look and say, where was it two hours ago? No. <laughs> but that's what people do today. Well, yeah, and that's and how they manage it. On the charts, when they right. do the intraday trading and things like yeah. that, well, the, the right. more narrow the focus, the more negative it's going to be. And another yeah. way I'll, I'll put that is don't let the problems of today bite at our ankles like a bunch of yapping dogs. Yeah. And they take yeah. our focus off the future to look at our ankles, which is the moment. And that creates yep. more negativity than looking long term. The longer term we but look, the better perspective we have. And there's such a lesson to be learned in the investment world and going to just overall mental health. Because I think as, as on the mental health side, for mental health, substance abuse, and addiction, everything's a horse race. Everything's right now. All, my, my depression has to be cured right now. You know, it's like nobody wants to work 10 years to get your mental health improved. I've worked five years hard, very hard, to get to where I'm at. 
it didn't happen overnight with many setbacks and probably more on the way. And there's such, there's something to say about rewards in life that are given to you over time if you're patient versus the gambler that lacks one thing, one thing only. The difference between a gambler and investor is time. Gamblers have none of it. Investors have all of it. And I think if we can use that, that metaphor, that analogy, whatever you want to say, towards improving well-being and mental health for people, it's a process. It's a, it's a long-term game. And you need to have a good offensive line, a good defensive line, a good quarterback, a good running back. Just like you got to not drink, not smoke, not eat pizza every day, work out. That's how you form your team, along with maybe a therapist and somebody that you like to read their books. I mean, whatever your toolbox is filled with. I think that's how we get past where we are with all the numbers on mental health going the wrong way. Yeah, and what, one of the points I made in the four-letter word that builds character, one of the 14 points about that was the benefits of deferred gratification. Absolutely. And, and I think that we've, we've lost that, not only in financial, but almost everything else. Everybody wants everything right now. And right. we have some people advocating that if, if your dream is denied, it's, it's, if your dream's delayed, it's denied. Whereas I said the earlier, a dream delayed is not denied. And so we yeah. have to help share with people, just because you can't have something today doesn't mean you won't have it and have it better Absolutely. than what you might have it today. And we Absolutely. need to be able to share stories and illustrations uh, that share that versus the negativity that comes from the pressure of the moment. Right. Well, listen, my friend, I've absolutely enjoyed this hour. It's been a fast hour. Like they seem to go very fast. <laughs> um, I, how can people reach you and what's the best way to contact you? I guess my website is richardbattle.com. Uh, the contact information is there. Uh, all of the books are there. They're also on Amazon and Richard V battle and, we have several videos on YouTube under that as well, and uh, would love the opportunity to talk to people. Yeah, well, I appreciate the time you've taken out of your busy schedule, and uh, for anybody that follows me or listens to me, uh, the goal of the Living Undeterred Project and Mindset is to find people that can add that extra arrow to your quiver or that tool to your tool belt. And I see eight arrows behind you. <laughs> I see eight books behind you. Uh, and uh, are your books on audiobook? I wanted to ask you that before we got off. That's a good question. Uh, five or six of them are on Kindle and four of them are on okay. audiobook. Okay. I'll make sure to so. pass that information on. So listen, I very much appreciate it. And um, I, I really enjoy uh, following your story and what you're doing. And uh, as I tell every guest on the show, and I'm not sure I need to tell you this, but uh, make sure you keep living undeterred, my friend.